This episode contains references to suicide. Please take care when listening. Resources can be found in our show notes. Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Michael Noel, sharing his story of how an optimistic road trip turns very dark. Michael is a really close friend of mine, and I'm incredibly excited to have him on the podcast with a story I've heard many times before, but never quite like this. Since Michael's based in California, this is our first interview conducted entirely online, but we just had to give him a call to hear his developing insights into how he makes sense of this dramatic and transformative episode in his life. But first, let's listen to his story recorded live at 21 Soho. It is October 2006, it's the end of summer, and winter's on its way, and I'm out of here. Going back to Los Angeles, where I lived for a decade before my boyfriend got a little too stalkery, and I left. (laughs) I've loaded up my truck with my dad and my best mate, Miles, and we are heading across country, which takes about five days. Miles, so you know, is my cat. He is the most handsome Maine Coon cat And he's just cool, like cool, like a dog cool. (laughs) Not like an asshole like cats are. And he likes to ride in the car on my lap, not in the carrier, or on the dashboard if it's sunny. So it's day four of the trip, and we are heading into Las Vegas, and that ex-boyfriend lives in Las Vegas, and it's been six years, before you judge me, it's been six years since we've been apart, and I'm like, "Mm." I'll, I'll call him and just tell him we're coming through town. I was with my dad, I was with my cat, plus, like, the end of the trip is going to be the next day. Like, what could go wrong? (laughs) Let's just say I ignored that that part of your stomach where you're like, I don't know, Michael. Um, He did ask if we wanted to spend the night in his apartment, and we just agreed. I don't know if it was that I wanted to see him. I was curious how he was doing. He was something that someone that was previously really important in my life. Our past is in the past. His apartment is, you know, decent. It's better than the alternative, which is a cheap hotel. Um, We all got dinner together, and we spent the night. The next morning, we're going to go to breakfast, and I invited Don to come with us, and he said that he had to run to the bank. So we agreed that we'd meet back up his apart- at his apartment afterwards and um, to say goodbye, and we would continue our journey. Uh, as we're pulling back into the apartment, I noticed that there were a lot of police activity, like sort of nearby. And I was like, hmm, something must be going down. Uh, and as we got closer to where we were going to park, they got closer. And by the time I got out of this driver's seat, I was surrounded by cops. And they had guns. And they said, freeze. <laughs> So I did. As I look around, like, this is unfolding very quickly, and I'm not really someone who has a lot of police activity, like a crossing guard sometimes, like maybe a speeding ticket when I was in my teens. I look over at my dad, and his hands are in the air, as he's told, and he has a little slip of paper, and it turns out it's the receipt from breakfast. And he says, he says, we have an alibi. (laughs) 
do we need one? <laughs> now, these police officers have a lot of questions for me. They wanted to know where I was coming from, where I was going, who I was staying with, why I was there, uh, and they gave me no time to respond. So I just said, I got here yesterday and we're staying with my friend Donnie's in 2024, and my name is Michael. And I pointed to his apartment, and just as I pointed, I saw Don walking down the stairs. So I said, he's right there. That's him right there. They asked me if he had a gun. I said, I just got here yesterday. I didn't take a full inventory. Um, (laughs) But I do know that he's owned a gun in the past, so since you seem to be very interested in him, let's go with there's a high probability. Let's call it a a soft yes. Uh, (laughs) As soon as I told them that he had a gun, maybe, Things kind of went to DEFCON 5 very quickly. Uh, they took us to the country club in this fancy apartment building that Don had misleadingly let me believe his life was going well. And uh, they set up an intel center. Very CSI New York. Very, yeah. Whiteboard. Yeah. One of the police officers came over to me and showed me a picture of Don. And he said, is this your friend? And I said, that is my friend. And he said, well, your friend just robbed a bank three blocks away. <laughs> My response, too. (laughs) You don't rub a bank when you have company. (laughs) That's fucked up. (laughs) I remember thinking, like, holy shit. My ex-boyfriend just robbed a bank. He's now barricaded, maybe armed, in his apartment with my cat. Now, all I cared about in this, let me be clear, this shit is not great, but my cat's in the place. And this is like, this cat, this cat, like I birthed this cat. This was my, like out of my, in my brain vagina. Uh, Nothing was going to happen to him on my watch. Um, This is literally all I cared about. And I asked everybody with a badge and a gun if they had any information about my cat. They did not. (laughs) They were busy. About eight hours passed, and I overheard on one of the police radios. Now, I'm not a stranger to a good police drama, so I knew that by the code that I heard, I heard them say uh, 1056, possible 1054, and I instantly knew that that meant that they had found a dead body and that it was possibly a suicide. My response, too. As soon as uh, they confirmed that he was dead, I just asked the cop, um, have you seen my cat? <laughs> I did. I, I want to I wanna lie and be like, that was so tragic. I was like, can, can I get my cat? <laughs> Another few hours go by as they process this crime scene. I actually snuck out of the intel center. I was not supposed to. And I went crawling around the crime scene, hiding in bushes, going, Miles? Miles? <laughs> he did not come. I just thought he jumped out of the house or something, and I, could, and I just thought, I can't live with myself if something happened to him. I put us in this situation, and my intuition told me not to fucking be there, and I was there, and look what happened. Like I was like, maybe this isn't a good idea. This is definitely not a good idea. Like, finally, at around 10 p.m., we were allowed to get our stuff, and um, this police officer said, you, you must be Michael. They had been talking about me. Um, so she, she handed me a cat carrier with Miles in it, and he was fine. Yeah. My dad and I got in my truck, and we drove to L.A. 
for a six-hour drive and never spoke to each other. <laughs> Just, like, full shock. Now, the thing about when something like this happens, I had heard this thing called shock. You go into shock. You're just in shock. What the fuck does that mean? (laughs) I will tell you what it means. It means that you feel like you are the color gray. I actually looked at my skin thinking I must be gray now. I don't ever remember not feeling anything other than we should get out of here. This happened 15 years ago, and Miles did live to be 21. And we spent every damn day together. He was my best pal. I've been telling this story for a long time because it's worth telling. Um, And I've always told it with some humor. And I think I've done that because I want to insulate the listener of the telling of the story from the trauma and myself too. And the process of rewriting this story and rewriting this story for this event um, and having excellent help from really talented people. Like, how did you feel? Take us there. And I'm like, I don't know if you want to go there. Um, and I realized I, I, I didn't want to go there. It was too hard. It was too scary. And through the process of storytelling and being able to tell you the story in a way that lets you somehow try to understand what it was like, I realized that this has been a really healing experience for me. Because I had emotion when I told this story with Michelle and Vic, and I never, never allowed myself to feel anything. So for me, storytelling is about revisiting, and it can also really be about healing. Thank you. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) How does it feel hearing that story back? Uh, I wasn't ready. (laughs) Oh, really? I think my memory of telling that story in different places is that um, I do always make it funny so that people are like, because that's, it's some stuff. And that was the first time that, that I've heard that recording. I I could hear it in my voice that I I emotional now um, about just how shitty that was. Yeah, that's a huge theme of this particular telling of this story, right? Is that you really tried to share what it was really like, not just that it was absurd and extreme and funny, but that it was really traumatic and hard. Yeah, I mean, someone died. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being willing to revisit it. I think we should mention for the benefit of our listeners that we are really good friends. We've been friends for 20 something years. Is that right? That is. Yeah. We met in 2000 or 2001. Long time. Long time. And I didn't check with you about mentioning this, but in the middle of this story, I got a phone call from one of my friends to see how my trip was going. That was me. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I don't really recall the conversation. I do. I called and I said, I'm looking for Michael Noel. And you were like, it's me, Michelle. It's me. Like, but you didn't even sound like that. You sounded like the equivalent of the gray that you described of being in shock. Yeah. So you called me maybe 10 minutes after I found out that Don had died. You answered the phone and I was like, who is this stranger? I don't recognize who's answering Michael's phone. You were like the most down, the most flat I'd, I think I'd ever heard. Yeah. Such that you didn't, rec- you thought I was somebody else. <laughs> so I wanted to ask Michael, you've explicitly talked about processing or shielding from difficult emotions through humor. And I'm just curious, is that, I think I know the answer to this, but has that been always true? Were you funny from birth? Yeah. 
I'm the middle child of teenage parents. So like, I just did what I had to do to like get noticed. And it turns out that I'm funny, which is lucky. Whenever my mom was mad, I would purposely try to come up with a joke to make her laugh. Because if she laughed, then she couldn't be mad anymore. I don't know any other life but to, that I'm kind of funny. Like, I don't know. I feel like if I'm too serious, people want to like, oh, what do you do for work? Like, I don't want to talk about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I'm wondering if there's an even less humorous, like more emotionally open telling than this. And do you think it would work? Do you think an audience wants to see a grown man cry? <laughs> I think if I were to get emotional in telling the story with zero humor and really letting people go there, I think it would be mm -hmm. impossible for me to try to honestly recount that day and not quiver the whole time. Like just talking about talking about it makes me emotional because and which which was never the case before I did this version of the story, to be fair. But this is what is so interesting to me about the as you talked about the power of storytelling is that I'm both want to give you a big hug and comfort you from the, the sort of emotion that comes up when you think about that time. But it also suggests to me that there's more processing to do, you know, that there's more to deal with there, that you've been kind of like burying a little bit in humor and and not necessarily really confronting how difficult that time was. Yeah, I I think that that's true. And I I never really like I didn't never went to therapy about this when I was going through like getting diagnosed with ADHD in my late 30s, like a couple of years after this had happened. The psychologist had to I had to meet with a psychiatrist or a, a nurse practitioner to be prescribed medication. So she was really like ahead of the trend. Yeah, <laughs> have been for a long time. Uh, <laughs> and it did change my life. So uh, no judgment from people who have issues with none with adults oh, gosh, none. medicating for adults. Uh, attention deficit disorder. Where was I? Just kidding. I took my medication. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had to meet with the nurse practitioner who is also a psychiatrist. And she she was like, any trauma into your life? And I was like, oh, I don't really think so. I was like, well, there's there was this one time where my ex-boyfriend robbed a bank and then killed himself. Literally, I was like, let me think. Trauma, trauma, trauma. <laughs> no, no. Oh, well, maybe. Does this count? You know, like... <laughs> And what did she say? She was like, uh, so she put me in therapy for six months. Oh, good. Did you go? I did go, but I don't think I was at a place in my life where I was even capable of, of dealing. I don't remember any of the therapy. I don't, I don't think it was helpful. Maybe it was. Who knows? Are you glad that you told this story in this way? Yes. Yes and no. Yes, I feel like as someone who really loves the art of storytelling and, and doing comedy, connecting with an audience. I feel like I did, as a storyteller, I did the best job that I was capable of on that night to deliver that story the way that I did. But listening to it back as someone who tends to protect himself from people knowing too much, it makes me feel more vulnerable. It makes you feel more vulnerable in that that's not comfortable and not something that you're, that you're after. It's not just, some, just not something that I'm familiar with. I'm open to it, you know? Well, no, I think that's what's kind of interesting because, um, you know, vulnerability is all the rage. So <laughs> Everyone's um, <laughs> doing it. <laughs> exactly. But this is a big thing to be vulnerable about because yeah. it was so huge. I just hope that this process ultimately is part of releasing some of that trauma and reframing that experience because it was kind of remarkable to me how grounded you actually were in what actually mattered to you in that time. Your clarity 
about what you could and couldn't influence and what you were responsible for and what mattered. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. One of the things that I realized in listening to this back is that there is a certain amount of shame associated with having made this decision, having put my father in this position, and now my cat is somehow missing. Like all the what ifs were kind of going through my head. Like what if he had just jumped in the car with us and we went off sightseeing, turned out the bag that he stole from the bank had a tracer in it. They would have chased us. I was protective of my dad, like because my dad had had a stroke a few years earlier and his speech gets messed up when he's nervous. And we I haven't talked about this at all, like my dad being in the story, but it was sort of a pivotal moment in our relationship as adult men where I think he saw me as a man who was protecting him as opposed to him just always seeing me as his kid. He had always been the protector. Like he was like kind of the crazy road rage guy. If he thought somebody put his kids in danger, he would chase them down. Like he's a little bit nuts, but (laughs) in in a protective good dad way. And I think on, on that day when he saw the police try to separate us. And without question, I just got between us and put my hand in his face. And I was like, that's not happening. He stays with me. So I think that there was a shift there in our relationship. Wow. So there's two things I want to talk about. So one is to understand how your dad did react to the whole tragic experience. Like you didn't talk on the ride to LA, but presumably you've talked about it a bunch since. How does he make sense of it? We have not talked about it a lot since. Really? My dad retells the story in like like a two minute clip. Wow. And my dad's just like... Like my, my, you know, he was a sick man. He, he robbed a bank and then he ended his life. He was sick to my, to my boomer dad. That is the explanation. Whoa. Okay. I don't think my dad was as stressed out about the situation as I was. He was just like, well, well, ain't this some shit? You know, I think he was just like, my friends at the campground are not going to believe it. He doesn't have a country accent, but I just feel like when I <laughs> represent him, like, I don't think that this was a traumatic moment in my dad's life. I don't. Wow. Okay. That's pretty interesting. He was like, oh, anyways, I'm going to fly home on Monday. Yeah. No, 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 no. (laughs) No. We're learning where Michael suppresses (laughs) suppresses bad feelings. (laughs) The old apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Because I was wondering if your dad was a reassuring presence to you, but it sounds like you were actually feeling I'm responsible for my dad. I put him in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, Michael, I wanted to ask you about the issue of not listening to your intuition on that day. You definitely felt like, "Mm, not sure this is a good idea, but I'm going to override this and do it anyway. What was going on then? Well, I think there was that pit in your stomach that like, this isn't a great, like we all have that intuition. And I I feel like I'm actually a pretty intuitive guy. Like I'm able to read people pretty easily. But apparently, you know, I just ignored it. And I know that I did. Because I have trustworthy intuition. I, I trust myself when it comes to like my spidey sense. I'm like, that's something to listen to. So I'm I'm not quick to override it. I'm not. And, and maybe that situation was a bit of an exception from how you normally operate. Yeah. I, th- <laughs> I feel like the universe over the years, like you and I and our friendship have talked a lot about the universe sort of running things and like things show up when you need them to, if you're willing to pay attention. And I think the universe was trying to like quietly be like, hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> Excuse me, that's, maybe you should have too. And then I wasn't listening. And then the universe was like, all right, here we go. Like, that's how I, that's how I view it in my lesson of trusting my intuition. You literally thought, what's the worst that can happen? And the universe was like, I'll show you. Yeah. The universe is like, funny you should mention that because, uh, 
we got a doozy in for you there, fella. It's interesting to look back at something this big and look at it through another lens. And it's tricky because people who don't know you might not understand why the tragedy of Don doesn't play as big in the in the retelling of the story. Did you need to mourn his loss, the loss of Don? Did you grieve, do you think? I think, yeah, in my own ways over the years, I think, you know, he was my first boyfriend a long, long time ago. Some incredible moments in my life happened while he and I were a couple. And having lost that person feels really tragic. But when I think about like who he revealed himself to be over the years, I feel like there was definitely some emotional abuse. There was light physical abuse. There was some real threatening behaviors. The reason that I left Los Angeles, because mm. my parents were like, this seems a little like if I can't have you, no one can. And I was like, that's weird. And like, I just like left. So it's hard. Like I sort of have him in two categories in my brain, right? The person that I once loved who has shared this beautiful, these beautiful moments in my life, you know, to the other person who like, you know, robbed a bank and then ended his own life while he had company. Like <laughs> We've never really, really talked about this. Like it's startling to think that he did that when you were present. Yeah. Feels a little on the nose, a little, you know, a little payback-y kind. Of, I don't know. Never really thought about it, to be fair. He had robbed four other banks. So he either like, you know, got caught so that this, this could happen or just happened to get caught. I'll never know. I'll never know. I'm not going to call the Long Island medium either. She seems booked. So, Michael, what happened after you got to L.A. and this was behind you? How did you deal with the aftermath of this situation? This is a really tricky one because I did not want any of the mutual friends that Don and I had while we were together to know that I was there when this happened. But I also knew that they needed to know what had happened but I didn't want to be the one to tell them because I didn't want them to know that I was there. Because why would I be there for all they knew I lived in Boston? So I found one friend that I trusted and I called him and I said, listen, I have something to tell you, but I, I need your word that you do not tell anyone that I was there or how you know. You tell them that the Las Vegas Police Department called you. That's how you know. And he was like, okay. So then I told him the story. And of course, tragic, telling him that his good friend has passed, blah, 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 this terrible stuff. Um. I got word, like I ended up on the list of people who should know about this, uh, that there was going to be a memorial service for Don at his favorite bar in West Hollywood. And I, again, like this is a tu an intuition moment. I was like, I don't want to go to this. Like, I don't want to go. And if this is the only opportunity where he's going to be sort of memorialized or like have like people say nice things in his honor as he, you know, pay their respects, whatever, then maybe I should. And I really grappled with it. And I thought, all right, made, made a promise to myself. All right, I'm going to go. But I'm standing in the back. And if it gets weird, I'll leave. I'll just leave. So I went to this bar, walked upstairs, started seeing a couple of people that I know, like, oh, hey, I didn't know you're in town. I'm like, oh, yeah, I just moved back. It's just so sad to hear this thing. Still in shock because it's only like a week later. So I walk in, make my way through this bar up to the front of like the balcony. And there are these two huge poster boards filled with pictures. Now, Michelle, <laughs> all of the pictures were of Don and me as a couple. Every single picture was of Don and me. Oh, my gosh. I was like, I came to pay my respect. I like showed up to pay my respects sort of quietly in the back. And I am all of a sudden a widow. I just left. I just ran out. I ran out of the bar and ran to my car and thought, you need to start listening to your gut. 
the universe was trying to tell me something with the situation, but it was like, mm, this bitch did not hear me. So that's how that ended. I don't even know where to go with how you process that kind of information after the fact of this person dying. Well, it meant that in all of his friends' minds, it would be important for every photograph that he had displayed to be with me. Like, that was where I was like, oh, he wasn't over me. He was still in love with me. And he told all of his friends that. Like, I was like, this is a weird practical joke. Like, kind of mean. Like a very noir film, that's for sure. Yeah. I was like, okay, I... I, This is the weird end of the psychological thriller. Yeah. Yeah. Jogged out of that bar and ran to my car and just like, (gasps) like, what just happened? That is so much to go through. It's like there was a parallel universe happening that you weren't aware of, that you only became aware of after enduring this tragedy. It's mind-blowing and massively unfair and needs a lot of reframing because otherwise it just feels like something that happened to you as opposed to like stepping back and looking at how tragic it was that, that Don subjected you to this. Well, like I said before, this was the first time I ever rewrote the story and practiced telling it in a way that let the listener come with me more. So I think because I was so surprised to be emotional, even after writing, it was only when I was telling it and I was trying to be mindful of like how I worded things and didn't have something be funny that I thought was important for the listener to hear. I I think about the situation from that day completely differently than I did before that happened. Like I'm much more gentle with myself about this being a healing experience and a learning moment as opposed to like, you're not going to believe what happened in Vegas, you know, 2006. Like I really am more protective of myself from talking about it because I don't want to tell this story as a funny story anymore. I don't think it's funny. I think it is the moment in my life where I changed. I became a different person after this. I live my life with trauma now. I don't say that in a way that's like, oh, I have this badge and I can be lazy or depressed. Or I just am recognizing that this was a really big deal. All of it. You know, from feeling like my dad's life was at risk and my cat was missing and Don was dead. Like, all of that stuff aside, like how it affected me, the, the emotion that I allowed myself to feel just tells me that there's much more healing to do. And then I need to just allow that to happen and feel things that I feel. I guess that's one of the benefits of storytelling. I think that you've articulated, you end up getting enough distance that you can see it more clearly or from different perspectives. And that can be very healing. So Michael, what are you up to now? It's many years after the time of this story, you are back in California. What is happening for you these days? Well, I'm fortunate enough to have a job as a performer, and I work for an online team building company as a live but online game show host, which is great because I don't always have to wear trousers. (laughs) And on the weekends and in any other spare time that I have, I'm giving tours of San Francisco on a vintage sidecar with my buddy Jerome, who owns this sidecar tour company. And it's just so fun. Michael, it has been such a privilege to get to explore this really meaningful, impactful story with you again. 
I know it was a really incredibly difficult time. And it's a real honor to me that you would trust me with the conversation to go even deeper than you did the night that you shared it. So thank you so much for letting us into some of the dramatic backstory of what was going on for you at that time and for sharing a bit more about your approach to storytelling, what you've taken from this. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's storyteller and conversation, check out the show notes. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by Sea Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. More information about our live shows and workshops can be found at truestorylondon.com. And just one more thing. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help us to reach more people. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon.